you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 36 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. Myself, Mark Totten Barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. How are you, Mark? Hope all good with you. And uh, just reflecting on last week's interview, we had the pleasure of having the great Michael O'Higgins SC in studio, superstar of the criminal courts and an incredible backstory in journalism. Hot Press McGill, the 1980s. Did you enjoy that? It was fascinating. It went down a bomb. I mean, the amount of people who have tapped me on the shoulder and said they enjoyed that interview, you know, couldn't count them, Mark. (laughs) There was that, that many. Anyway, well, today we are back in the realm of commercial law and particularly intellectual property. And I'm delighted we're going to be joined in studio by Glenn Gibbons, senior counsel, who has just published the third edition of his book, Gibbons on Trademarks. He's going to come into us to talk about the developments that led to the third edition of his book, Intellectual Property. So for practitioners in this area and for the public at large, this is going to be a great one. I think it's something a lot of people, they, they feel they know something about, but then I, I think he'll, he'll be very helpful in, in elucidating the issues. Okay, but before we get to that, we're going to discuss three cases from the Decisis website. And first today, we're looking at a case where a solicitor applied to come off record in circumstances where the client could not meet the fees. Scotchtone Capital Funds Limited uh, versus Ireland is a decision of Ms. Justice Donnelly in the Court of Appeal. And the plaintiff company had been involved in extensive litigation against the state. There had been severe disagreements between the solicitor and the company directors. And the solicitor sought to come off record. So they'd fallen out anyway. But there was also an issue to do with fees, I think. The issue really was that the company was impecunious, had very little money. They'd been fighting the, the, um, the state in litigation for a long time. There was a serious disagreement between the company and its solicitors and the company had certainly suggested that the solicitor provided an inadequate legal service. So there's no question that there was quite a a, a difference of opinion, should we say. So the solicitor, for obvious reasons, then applied to come off record and the company said that notwithstanding they weren't happy with his representation, said, well, he can't come off record because we as a limited company have to be represented by a solicitor because that's the law. A director can't represent a company. And so they, they sought to force the solicitor to remain on record. And the general law on this is, is fairly well established. They want a, off. They can get a, off. a solicitor can't be forced to represent a no, client. That would be um, very unfair exactly. if that was the case. Yeah. So that's that, that was the decision that was held. OK, next we go to the latest judicial decision in the Enoch Burke case. And this is the case of the Board of Management of Wilson's Hospital School versus Mr. Burke. It's a decision of Mr. Justice Owens. This long running case finally came to a hearing, arrived at a hearing before Mr. Justice Owens. The school board claimed that the teacher had been engaging in harmful and disruptive conduct. The teacher had issued a counterclaim seeking relief arising from the disciplinary process. So Mark, tell us all about it. This case has had a lot lot of um, publicity, but essentially what the the school did was that they, first of all, suspended the teacher. They placed him on administrative leave saying that he he is engaging in harmful and disruptive conduct. And then they dismissed him. And the issue really was whether or not they had acted lawfully in placing him on administrative leave because, as you recall, there were various um, injunctions arising from the fact that he was attending at the school, despite the fact that he'd been suspended. Now, the teacher himself had issued a counterclaim arising from the disciplinary process. However, unfortunately, when the 
teacher attended at court, instead of pursuing his counterclaim in the way that the court expected, he acted in what was described as a disorderly manner and in persistent contempt of court. So I suppose it's fair to say that the, that that's not the best way to conduct yourself if you are trying to counter an allegation from the school that you were likely to engage in harmful and disruptive conduct. So effectively, having failed to pursue his counterclaim properly, the counterclaim was dismissed and the the um, and Mr. Justice Owens then upheld the school's allegation that he that there was a reasonable apprehension that he would engage in harmful and disruptive con- conduct. Is this the end of the road? Can there be an appeal to the Court of Appeal? There can certainly be an appeal, but I think unfortunately uh, the 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 Court of Appeal would be entitled to take into account certainly the manner in which he pursued his counterclaim. Okay, let's see what happens. Exactly. Let's see what happens. Okay, finally today, Mark, a company law case in which the company was found to have engaged in fraud on its investors. This is the case of Inre WFS Forestry Ireland. Limited, a High Court decision of Mr. Justice Quinn. Here, a company had been uh, seeking investments in a non in non existent Christmas tree farms. Mark, oh my God, so, killing the spirit of Christmas. Exactly, they had um, surely not. They had been looking for investors. They had uh, they claimed to have Christmas tree farms both in Ireland and in the UK, and they had obtained what seems to be quite a substantial amount of investment. I think it was over seven million investment in the company. Eventually, the High Court appointed an inspector to inquire into the affairs of the company. They found that the company had intended to defraud the investors. And then an application came to the court to grant a winding up order. But in order to grant a winding up order, you need to find a liquidator. And the problem was that by this stage, there was no money left in the company because a lot of this money... Are you telling me the liquidator wouldn't do it for nothing? Well, they had not found a person who was prepared to act as a liquidator. Do liquidators get paid? Do they? The, the liquidators are the first people to be of paid. Of course they are. Yes, absolutely. And very handsomely paid. But I won't, I, won't go, I won't go any further than that. Okay, so that's it. Okay, Mark. Well, thank you for those three cases. We're going to be back shortly with Senior Counsel Glenn Gibbons. Silence in the Fifth Court. Okay, so it is my great pleasure to welcome an old classmate of mine. Glenn Gibbons, Senior Counsel to the studio. And Glenn, believe it or not, I can't believe this, the third edition of your book has just come out. It was launched last week or the week before last, I think, with uh, former Chief Justice Frank Clark. Third edition of Gibbons on trademarks. Yeah, thanks very much for having me on, uh, Peter and Mark. Yeah, time flies, eh? Um, first edition was published in was it 2007, 2008. Yeah, yeah. okay, 2008, edition, okay. Long overdue. Yeah, yeah. And can be a great night with Frank and the whole thing. Yes, yeah, yeah. A big turnout. Indeed, yeah. Plenty yeah, of books yeah. sold, yeah. I hope. Hopefully so. Yeah, I'll find out, my doubt, from the publisher. Okay, yeah. okay. Well, let's, let's, let's get into it. Okay, so trademarks. First of all, Glenn, I mean, as I said, we were, we were classmates together. And this was something you were always interested in. And it was intellectual property, generally. Why did this area of law appeal to you? background is law and economics, and I sort of always interested in competition law and intellectual property. And did both of them as part of my um, master's and uh, devilled in the area with uh, Jacinta Heslin and, and so on. So I always had a an interest um, in the topic. And I think it was our colleague, Neil Maddox, who was writing a book at the time, said, oh, you a need to write... A friend of the show. A friend, a friend of, the of the show, show here, yeah. Yeah, I think who suggested writing a book on, on some obscure topic. And I thought, OK, trademarks. Do you always follow Neil Maddox's suggestions? <laughs> no. <I> hope not. <laughs> but anyway, no, great. OK, so, he, so that was it. He kind of suggested maybe do it. I think so, yeah. But you were working in that area, weren't you? 
I, I was sort of, uh, certainly deviled in the area, yes, and uh, yeah, had good exposure to um, that and other intellectual property issues such as copyright and so on. Okay, okay, very good. And so, will you tell us how you go about writing a book like this? I mean, it's, it's you know, do you have to go right back to scratch? Were there pre- predecessors in terms of Irish trademark law that you were able to piggyback on or did you have to start from scratch? Um, there was one relatively old Irish textbook on, on trademarks, but there was nothing nothing specifically on trademarks post the 1996 Act. There's obviously a very leading textbook on intellectual property um, by Clark and Smith and Neve Hall, um, but there was no specific text at the time concerning the 1996 Act and the 1996 Trademarks Act brought in or incorporated into Irish law, the Trademark Directive. And were, were big changes brought in by the 1996 Act? I mean, what was the difference between the old Irish regime and the EU regime? Very much so, yeah, yes, because the, the old regime was... The, the UK Act in the, in the 1800s, Curly wrote about, and Curly would be the leading trademarks act or book uh, in existence probably in the common law. Not probably is. So the initial UK Act was a Victorian piece of legislation and that had been amended a number of times and the Irish Act pretty much mirrored that, both pre-independence and post-independence. Um, but the 1996 Act was and it, in effect it, a EU directive being incorporated. And in practical terms, how did that change in terms of registration or or, or protecting trademarks? Well, it, it, it had different grounds uh, of protection and also, which is quite important nowadays, is that you've, for infringement, for example, there are three grounds of infringement. So you can, in broad terms, you can infringe if the infringing mark is identical or double identity. The second ground is if there's a likelihood of confusion between the, the, the two marks or the two signs. And thirdly, which originally was optional, but now is compulsory across member states, is, is that if a trademark has a reputation, You've got strength and protection and you can take a claim of for unfair advantage and so on. So, so that's, that's, that's a reputation in a trademark. A reputation in a trademark. So, for example, some of the world's leading trademarks, just looking at the list here, you, you, Apple, Google, Amazon and so on, they clearly have a reputation. So not alone can they take an action against an identical mark or secondly, a mark um, if there's a likelihood of confusion. There's a third ground, um, which is that if they have a reputation and somebody's taking unfair advantage by piggybacking on the mark. So almost a kind of defamation action for a trademark or is that... Is well, it that might be injurious to the reputation, but mm. uh, yeah, but but uh, but that third ground is controversial because the first two grounds is about protecting consumers. So yeah. the consumer's confused. The third ground is about protecting trademarks and brands. But that argument is long since lost because it was initially optional under the 1990s or under the, the directive that led to the 1996 Act. That's now compulsory. So are you telling me, Glenn, I always thought these, you know, wonderful companies, when they went out to protect their trademark, were doing it for selfish and for reasons of their own profits. You're telling me now it's all about protecting the interests of the public <laughs> so that the customers are not confused and don't yeah, know what's yeah. going on. And well, certainly when the they fir- go into the shopping mar- with the supermarket, they can don't know which product to pick. Is that what you're saying? Well, certainly the first two grounds, you could say, have uh, the consumer at its heart. The third ground can't be justified on that basis. It's about protecting brands. And you see that at a European level because clearly what does Europe sell to the rest of the world to sell sometimes some of the world's leading brands and we can name them. Um, so there is an element of international trade going on as well. Um, but the third ground, can, that's the, the raison d'etre. For we, we have a lot of listeners to this show who are outside the world of law, and we have a lot of lawyers, again, who wouldn't be overly familiar with this area of law. Can I just, when we have you in the room, and we have an expert in the room, can you just give us a brief tutorial on trademarks? I mean, trademarks, anything can be trademarked. Isn't that correct? Pretty much, if... 
nowadays once it can serve as a badge of origin. And what does that mean? It means traditionally if I saw a word mark going into a supermarket, loaf of bread or carton of milk, um, I'd say, aha, that must be X. Nowadays, it's much wider. It can be even the sound, the color. Those less traditional trademarks are much more difficult to register because what the Court of Justice will invariably say is, in principle, all trademarks can be registered if they are distinctive. In practice, though, customers aren't well-versed in treating a colour as a, as a badge of origin. Or so you, you can trademark a, a word, obviously, and you can trademark an image. And you're saying that an, a, an individual kind of Pantone colour can on its own be, be it, trademarked it, or in association yeah. with a word or in, an image? In theory, yes, it can. What about Dungeon? And, and, there's, Dun- been, and there's been recent, recent litigation over the last number of years in relation to, for example, Glaxo and the colour purple and so on, where they had difficulties with, with that registration. But um, there are successful registrations in Europe for colour trademarks, but it's difficult. Deutsche Often Telekom, have to, am I right on that? Deutsche Telekom, uh, Magenta. They, they may Whatever have Magenta Peter, is, but, they, but that, I remember that was a big case, wasn't it? I can't recollect okay. that case off, off the top of my head, but certainly I think there are registered colour trademarks. You have to, invariably, you would have to prove to the office or the court that you've acquired distinctiveness in the mark that by way of survey or other or by other form of evidence um, that the public know when they see that particular colour that is associated with I mean, it's, it sounds, a lot of this sounds very similar to the tort of passing off, which mm. is, I suppose, we all learn about in tort law, you know. But obviously, trademarks go beyond that. It's not just a question of, of confusion. It's a question of protecting your, your, the intellectual right in, the, in the, um, the, the, the name or image. Is that right? And more so in terms of just proving the case, because as we know from our classic lectures on passing off, the classic trinity, you know, goodwill, misrepresentation, damage, often in litigation, it can be difficult difficult to prove a misrepresentation wherefore if you have a registered trademark it's a slam dunk if you can just show that they're identical or even the likelihood of confusion is a, is a lesser test. So anybody Me, starting a business would be well advised to register a trademark as quickly as possible? Very much so and this is a real difficulty in terms of smaller businesses or businesses that are embryonic and so on. They might have a great business, they might be setting up, watching their pennies and don't necessarily protect their intellectual property not just in trademarks but their entire intellectual property the way bigger businesses or well, better resource businesses would. And the difficulty with that is, obviously, when you become successful and trendy and sexy, people like to copy you. Uh, and if you don't have the protection, and, it, can, and it can just be more difficult, you know, to, to protect And I don't yourself. know if you get involved in the, in the, the registration side of things, but I mean, is, is, that, is that a prohibitive expense for a small business or is it something that, you, that is manageable? I, I don't. As a barrister, it'd, probably, it'd be more a trademark agent or, or, or a solicitor. For an Irish trademark, it's not terribly expensive. Obviously, the more trademarks you have, the more expensive and EU trademarks, I believe, are more expensive. I haven't looked at the exact fee. But my advice would be, if you think ultimately you're just going to be a coffee shop in in Dundrum and you're not going to expand expand to Berlin and Germany uh, or Germany or Italy or wherever it may be, you might just be happy with an Irish trademark. But in the world of the internet and these businesses nowadays, they can often grow so quickly that within a year or two, they're, they're, they are across Europe. So I think as part of your business plan, you need to think, where am I going ultimately? And then work back from that and seek either a European trademark and or an Irish trademark. They're not mutually exclusive. You can seek both. But well, one man, when you talk about where are you going, the, the the thought that came into my head is one man who's not afraid to go into court is one Pat McDonough, owner of the famous Supermax mm. brand that we have here. Didn't he get into serious trouble when he tried to expand into the UK with McDonald's? Wasn't there? They, they tried to stop him, I think, and he had a famous victory. He did. Um, 
based on 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 the, the facts of Supermax and, and setting it up and so on. Yes, and that was an international case that was even reported in the New York Times, I think, at the time. Yeah. Can I just ask you about a phrase? You can also trademark a phrase, isn't that isn't that correct? And you, you can trademark a slogan. Yeah, um, but again, it's difficult because. Somebody told me once that Arnie Schwarzenegger tried to trademark Hasta la Vista, baby. Oh, really? Okay. But if it's associated with somebody, it is actually, there is an ownership quality, isn't there? Yes, but you'd have to show that when the consumer saw it, that they would associate it with that entity or person. Yeah, yeah. It's so assuming the person is running a business. So they probably would associate that with, with Arnie. Okay, so let's say European now, there's trademarks. You can trademark something in Ireland, you can trademark something in Europe, and you can trademark something in the world. Will you tell me about those distinctions and what has to be done in order to do that? So the European one is in Alicante, the European offices in Spain, and that's where the registration would go for all of Europe, all the European Union. Post-Brexit, obviously, you have a different regime for the United Kingdom and the Irish trademark offices, Irish intellectual intellectual property offices, it's called now, was the patents offices based in Kilkenny. Um, so you simply just file the papers and there can be contested hearings sometimes if it's opposed. Often it will be opposed if it, if it interferes, if someone believes it's on their pitch uh, in terms of a, a registered trade. So what happens then if somebody opposes it? You have a hearing and, well, the hearing can be done on paper, but you can have an oral hearing in, in Kilkenny where it's um, and ultimately on appeal to the High Court. And is that a common occurrence? There's a number of them a year, yes. And, and they write the decisions are, are quite detailed. Um, you see them on, on, on the website, okay. maybe 10 a year. Mm. So. And then in terms of infringement of trademarks, I mean, is that is uh, does that regularly occur that that um, that people have to bring actions to, to protect their trademarks? Well, going back to the comment one of you made earlier about smaller businesses, often you will see smaller businesses don't have the resources for a fight and Ultimately, if a cease and desist letter arrives in their letterbox, um, they may give the undertaking yeah. um, because of this type of litigation obviously can be quite expensive um, if it goes to a, to a full trial. Um, but we do have a number of cases. Yeah, okay. Trial. So you've brought out, as we said at the start, Glenn, you've brought out the third edition of your book. Okay, so so what's new in this book? What merited you bringing out a third edition of the book? What happened over the, the previous, what, six or seven years? Big cases. Like most, I think Mark mentioned this on the podcast, uh, one of the podcasts a couple of weeks ago, then just the volume of judgments over the last number of years. So there is a specialist uh, journal called, or case report called the European Trademark Reports, and it seems to be getting bigger each year. And that's obviously just doing a law report on the hundreds if not thousands of judgments across Europe. So from the general court is the biggest, the big court in terms of dealing with appeals. Very few would go to the court of justice. Preliminary reference traditionally would, particularly say from the UK and Germany, when the UK was in the European Union. So you have all those judgments to digest. You then have the Irish judgments to digest, such as the impact of the Merck judgment on reshaping or injunctions, interlocutory injunctions, as well as the number of Irish trademark judgments over recent years. So that's all obviously needs to be read and updated. summarised and updated. In and the has there been any sort of game-changing decisions that have changed the nature of trademarks or how implications for how tra- trademarks go go forward? Well, I think the Merck judgment is, is of importance because there were a number of judgments prior to that judgment by the Supreme Court, uh, certainly one or two, that said damages are an adequate remedy for trademark infringement. Okay, will you explain, view, will you explain that to our listeners? So go back, explain, to, our, what, go back to our old campus oil test that every law student remembered. And Is there an issue to be tried? Yes, usually, otherwise you wouldn't bring the motion. The next question, are damages an adequate or inadequate remedy for both parties? And then move on to the next step. There are a number of judgments that effectively said that damages would be an adequate remedy for trademark infringement. And the difficulty with that stepping aside and looking objectively is it's very difficult 
to quantify damages for a trademark infringement case because effectively what you're asking or trying to quantify is how many people were confused, how many people bought the other product and thought, oh, this is a terrible product, I'd never buy it again. How many people recommended to third parties this is the particular product and so on. Lost sales isn't, isn't, isn't a, an accurate bar- uh, barometer of it. So how do you judge it then? Well, there was an old judgment that said you need a sound imagination and the exercise of a broad axe <laughs> uh, for trademark infringement. Some English judgments have tried to say, oh, can we do it on an implied license basis? So if you're to license to trademark, how much would it be? But as we know, many companies won't license a trademark because for a number of reasons. So in those type of cases, it's quite difficult to say, well, without naming certain brands, mm-hmm. but they just wouldn't do it. So how can you imply a license in that scenario? The way you could potentially for a copyright case, because say a photographer might say, well, I'll charge five euro a photograph. Well, then you can, you can do, the, do, do the maths or in a patent case. So I think to say damages are an adequate remedy for a trademark infringement case is wrong. And what Merck, the Merck judgment by the Supreme Court just restores that inherent flexibility. So there will always be an injunction. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm not saying that because then you go on to the next step and you look at it more fluidly and say, where does the balance of convenience or the balance of... I suppose the the real problem is that if the infringer is allowed to continue using the infringing mark then by the time the matter comes to hearing, they've already built up a reputation in it. It's very difficult to turn the back the clock and say, right, now you've got to get rid of that trademark. Whereas if you get your injunction in the first instance, then, you know, the, the if it comes to hearing, they can at least bring the product out at a later stage. Exactly. And, 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 you know, the old softening of the blow, if, if, if an injunction was refused, that you would give directions for an early trial. Mm-hmm. With, but the difficulty, as we all know, the three of us, discovery and the role of discovery, just elongates matters. So the idea of, oh, I'll refuse your interlocutory injunction and we'll have the trial in a couple of months' time in this day and age of litigation, it seems fanciful. Especially if there's a lot of those cases, then the the, the relevant part of the High Court is going to struggle to, to yes. deal with the most. Okay. Another case I noticed, just looking through your book, Glenn, was this case, it's a UK case, I think, mm. Philip Warren and Little. That, that that was one that caught your fancy. Yeah, I think it, just on the issue, well, it, it's interesting on a number of respects, but Lidl ultimately won the case. It was before Daniel Alexander, QC, KC now, who sits as a deputy. And what was the judge. issue? Will you just talk us through the um, issue? Philip Warren seemingly is a very high-end butcher who has a shop, butchers, but also sells to very high-end stores uh, in London. And they took a case against Lidl for a similarly worded brand of, of product uh, to its own and ultimately lost court believing that there was no likelihood of confusion. But what was interesting is the publicity order. So publicity orders under the EU IP enforcement directive, that gives IP owners a number of remedies in addition to traditional national remedies. So by IP, you mean intellectual property. Sorry, excuse me. Yeah, yeah. yes, okay. (laughs) We have to... Intellectual property. Keep it general. So the intellectual property, the remedies directive, a lot of the remedies are framed on traditional Irish-English remedies. One that we don't have really in this jurisdiction or in common law is a publicity order. So... One of the reliefs that Lidl sought in this case was a publicity order. Now, there's been a number of English judgments which both granted and refused publicity orders. Okay, what's a publicity order? Sorry, so pu- I know I'm firing the questions out, yeah. but it's very interesting. So a publicity order, I think there might be something similar in defamation, but publicity order in certain jurisdictions. But a publicity order is effect, sorry, in effect, that you, either, you say you win the case as the plaintiff and what the court wants to do is dispel that marketplace confusion. So you could imagine you had a website that was deemed to be infringing, the court might say, well, we want you to publish on your website for six weeks a link to our judgment on courts.ie or Bailey or whatever it may be. Or in an offline scenario, we may want you to put a notice 
at the front entrance of your business saying this door is not in any way connected to X, whatever it may be. So the idea is, is try to undo what was done by okay. the infringement. Now, interestingly, the English courts... So it's have, almost like an apology in defamation. Is that what you're saying? Or, it's, it's an attempt to try and redress... Well, trying to pull it the back, other side Trying out, to press yeah. the rewind button, I suppose. Yeah. Which is only partially, obviously, can only be partially be successful. But interestingly, the English courts, um, I think it was Sir Robin Jacob, one of his judgments, who was a big judge in the area of intellectual property. He said, well, if the plaintiff can seek it, well, then the successful defendant should also be able to seek it. And he rooted that under the English Courts Act, under the English statutory position. So there's no reason why we can't do the same, in my view, under our Courts Act 1981, which is very similarly worded in an appropriate case. So the position in England now is either side can look for it, um, depending on the outcome of the case. And how it manifests itself isn't really set down, but it'd be for the party to say, well, look, this is how the activity was done, or this activity is really aimed at, you know, younger people who are online on X social media. Maybe that's the way to <laughs> to do it, as opposed to pensioners who, you know, are offline and not a particular thing. So that, yeah, I'm being so ageist that, here or just starting. But, you know, the people might be more traditional and might want to read like it Mark in the Irish Times. on Instagram all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They might want to read it in the Irish Times. Or, Can I ask, I, I was struck by a recent decision, a 2017 decision, Mujahid and Carol. This is taking it outside the Oh, yes. I was in that area. case, actually. So oh, right. Okay. Well, allowed to speak well, well <laughs> maybe we'll ask you to address right. it generally. So this is a case where the owner of the trademark got a warrant to search mm. premises looking for counterfeit goods that yes. were infringing trademarks. So obviously you can't discuss the individual case, but perhaps you could outline this is where an individual trademark owner can actually get to search premises or can take sort of action on the ground to see what infringement is going on. Uh, can you just talk us through how that works? So there is a mix traditionally, obviously, between, sorry, my mind now, I'm thinking about the book to recommend. <laughs> actually, I was, I was thinking of the book to recommend on the way in and a book actually and I'll answer the question mark is The, the Due Process of Law by Laura Denning and it's published in 1980 and in the course of the book he, he discusses the Anton Pillar order right. which and the Anton Pillar order he said oh was created by one chancery barrister Could, could called, you just t- t- tell for, the, for those of our listeners So the Anton Pillar t- order is effectively like a search order but it's not a criminal search order so it's not as if you can enter the property but the sting in the tail is if you don't comply with the order you're in contempt of court so Lord Denning said that this was created by basically one chancery barrister uh, yeah. called Hugh, uh, Hugh Laddie, who became a very famous intellectual property judge. And that was created in the context of copyright and bootleg records and LPs and so on back, back in the day. And from that, Anton Pillar orders, which obviously have some utility or quite a lot of utility, there is a separate regime under the criminal law by which the Gardaí can conduct criminal investigations and do searches. In relation to trademark In relation to trademarks. And that case related not to an Anton Pillar order, but actually under the criminal sections of the Trademarks Act. I see. So basically you report to the guards and say, we we suspect that X person is infringing our trademark and the the guardie will then take appropriate action. Yes. And just step back a little bit more and even at, at customs, there's an EU regime for customs where customs will look at counterfeit goods coming in and so on. But once they come into the jurisdiction, the Gardaí can prosecute under the Trademarks Act. And you see in England, for example, much more aggressively than here, much more numerously than here, private prosecutions for intellectual property. So not just for, for uh, trademarks, but for copyright and you know, the sale of dodgy boxes and stuff. I should know this, Glenn. How long does a trademark last for? Ten years. But this this brings brings me to the point, Peter, that one of the other issues in the book. Ten years, but you can renew in perpetuity, assuming you pay the fee and no one attacks you successfully. So 
it raises the issue which which the Court of Justice have tr- has tried to grapple with over the last whatever decade or so or more, which is that most intellectual property or a lot of intellectual property has a term limit and then off you go when it's open to the market and we are supposed to it's work free for all then at we that are stage. supposed to work in a liberal economy and which yes. is competitive mm-hmm. and so on so there's a tension between that concern allowing people to compete and something comes off patent for example and then intellectual property owners are converting something that perhaps came off patent or was a registered design and so on into a trademark and then once they get the trademark registered, they have a zone of exclusion and they can keep that pretty much forever. Yeah. So, so for example, when Carlsberg say, probably, <laughs> I can't start talking about my drink that I've manufactured down the country and start co- saying probably. I'll never be able to do that. Sure, I won't. I'll never be able to get that trademark or take that word. Well, if it's so entrenched, if the trademark, if it's a standard word mark and it's so entrenched, like, for example, Guinness, you'd have a hard job trying to take Guinness off Guinness as a trademark. So it's more the unorthodox trademarks. So the battleground or the ground of litigation or jurisprudence, which is is trademarks which are unorthodox, but could also be, for example, a patent or a design or was a patent and design. What the owner says, oh, no, these are so well known as to be distinctive because it's a particular type of bike or headphone that you're, and, and so on. Yes. Um, and another big brand owner usually saying, no, 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 that doesn't meet the criteria of a trademark. And off they go and litigate. Just, uh, just the, when you mentioned Guinness there, kind of curious thing, and I might be wrong in relation to this, which I often am, but uh, you are not entitled to take on board, let's say, symbols of the state That's for the true, purposes Peter. of trademarks, yep. for example, like the harp. Mm-hmm. But if you look at Guinness, you know, under the name Guinness or 1751 or whatever the date is, underneath that or in, in the middle of that, you will have a harp. But it doesn't go against the, the national harp. And you know why? It's a different type of harp. And it's predated. But it's facing the other way around. It's the other way around. Isn't that it? I think that's it. Well, certainly yeah. So that's how they got away. So there is a solution. I think it did predate the foundation of the state. Oh, maybe the, slightly. The state was maybe infringing slightly. Guinness's trademark. Yeah, you, you can't use state emblem, <laughs> emblems which, which, are, which are listed. And somewhere in my book, there was a candidate, I think I have in a footnote, there was a candidate, I think, in a European election who was using a state emblem. And I think there was correspondence issued or whatever, you know. So that's true. State emblems can't be used or ought not to be used. Okay. Okay, very good. Glenn, this has been really, really, really good. Um, You have mentioned your book already, but will you tell us more about it? We obviously ask everybody to recommend a book or a movie. You mentioned the book by Lord Denning. Why why have you chosen that one? Well, just because it feeds into a discussion on Anton Pillar orders. There was another book, well, looking again, rushing out the door this morning. Roy Jenkins, who writes very well. Former former Labour Labour Party. Essays and speeches. European Commissioner, Um, yeah. Yeah, he has some nice articles and crime and justice more, you know, law and politics and so on. Was he a lawyer, Roy Jenkins? I'm not I know sure. he was a politician, obviously a yeah. very lofty Labour yeah. politician in the 1970s and went on to be Chancellor of Oxford University, if I remember correctly. And an SDP. SDP, founder of the SDP. Yeah, yeah, so Roy Jenkins. And what about a movie, Glenn? Well, I was thinking about that as well and... Top Gun has been taken now, so top, give us another okay. one. God, it's been probably 30 odd years or so since I watched it, but Mississippi Burning, I remember going yes. into Extra Vision store my brother probably wanted a karate film or whatever. And I picked Mississippi Burning Gene Hackman to watch again. Yeah, yeah. The Deep South Mm. and uh, yeah, social issues and all that sort of stuff. No, uh, absolutely a cracking movie. I don't think I've ever seen a bad movie with Gene Hackman, but that's it. That's for a different day's work. Glenn, come here. Best of luck with your new book. I mean, it's fantastic. And this is the leading authority on trademarks in this jurisdiction. Uh, You've done wonderful work in relation to it. I know you had a wonderful launch and the complimentary things that former Chief Justice, uh, Mr. Justice Frank Clark said about you were absolutely wonderful. Your ears must have been burning, even though you were in the room. So can I thank you most sincerely for coming in and being a guest on the Fifth Court.
The fifth court will adjourn until next week. So that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guest, Senior Counsel Glenn Gibbons, who came in and told us about the third edition of his book, which has recently been published, Mark. And uh, I think I know a lot more about trademarks than I did. Absolutely. No, really informative. It was great. Really, really enjoyed that interview. Okay. I'd also like to say a big thank you to our producer, Cunnell O'Moroin, and to the Dublin South Podcast Studios. And for the third time in a row, we've been recorded by Alison, which is just fantastic. Thank you, Alison, for your wonderful work in recording this show. And as always, if you have any comments or topics that you'd like us to discuss, let us know. So that's it from me, Peter Leonard. Myself, Mark Tottenham. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon in the Fifth Court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.